Hey, Forge family. We're back together again, poised to begin our series on the life of Samuel. In the introduction, in, in the last podcast, we got a look at the culture and stresses on Samuel as he was birthed into a persistent miasma of Canaanite culture that surrounded each of the tribes of Israel. That culture resulted in the tribes being vulnerable, vulnerable to abject paganism. And that often resulted in huge friction and bloodshed between the tribes of Israel. There are great lessons to be learned from the life of Samuel who walked before God in a perverse culture. Lastly, I urged you to ask the Lord for ways to pray for and care for the lost people around you, asking God for divine appointments with neighbors, co-workers, employees, service agents, kids, all that cross your path. <clears throat> Some are ready now, now, to dump the values of new Canaan, if you will, to repent and invite Jesus into their hearts. When we're next together, I want to hear the stories of your prayers and God's ways with those prayers. So let's pray. God Most High, we are surrounded by many millions who... Amen. Okay, family. Hit the pause button on this sound file. Okay, go and collect your Bible, your notebook, your pen, your coffee, whatever you bring to the study of Scripture. And then, to open the Bible, read 1 Samuel chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 11. That's less than 10 minutes, okay? Then come back, hit the pause button. Here we go. 1 Samuel was written by Samuel, and it's one of the most vividly textured, pictured books of the scriptures. Immediately, Samuel wants us to know his roots. His father was of the tribe of Levi, and his father was mentioned in 1 Chronicles chapter 6 as a descendant from Kohath, the son of Levi. His name means God has taken possession. Now, in Hebrew, you pronounce his name el Hanah, And he lived in the high country, close to the summits of the ridge that, ran, that runs north-south down the, the land of Israel in Ramathaim Zophim. There, in that place, there are two watchtowers situated high on that ridge nearby so that whenever the tribes of, of, of Ephraim were watching, they could see if there was anything to be alerted to danger. And here, Elchanah has two wives. So for the sake of, of uh, this, <laughs> this podcast, I'm going to go back to the anglicized version of, of his name. Because I was, I was in Sunday school, they said, oh, this is Elkanah. So because of the flow today, and I don't want to ha all over you, um, this, we're going to use Elkanah's name here. His first wife, listed in first order anyway, and the one he loved is named Hannah, whose name means grace or gracious. The second wife is Panina, and her name means pearl. The text says Panina had many children, and she plagued Hannah, who was barren. Does that sound familiar? Jacob had two wives. He loved Rachel, and he tolerated Leah. But the Lord opened Leah's womb and gave her ten sons before Rachel's prayers for children were answered. Perhaps Elkanah took Panina because Hannah could not bear children. 
So what is this business with polygamy? This business of two wives. Okay, the ancient code of Hammurabi states there are four distinct laws permitting the taking of a second wife if a first wife is barren. In the Bible, Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham in Genesis 16, and Rachel gave Bilhah to Jacob in Genesis 30 because both of those women were barren. Hannah is in a small crowd of other barren women in Scripture. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Tamar, Samson's mother, Elizabeth, and even Mary of Nazareth, all initially barren. There are many adults introduced in Scripture, but there are few significant pregnancies. Ishmael, then Isaac, Esau, Jacob, Perez, Samson, John the Baptist, and Jesus. And now we're introduced to Samuel. Elkanah, being of the tribe of Levi, may have been called to serve before the Lord at Shiloh in the temple complex. The text says he went up yearly. Now in the Old Testament, all Israel was commanded to present themselves before the Lord three times a year. Obviously, something has shifted in their worship patterns during the book of Judges. But yearly, Elkanah would take his family and he would journey probably a day's walk. That was a long walk for kids, okay? But it was doable and from Ramah to Shiloh. His family would come to worship and sacrifice at the ingathering of tithes before Yahweh Savaoth. Lord Almighty, God of hosts, God of armies. This is the first mention of this name of God in Scripture. In Shiloh, Eli served as priest and judge, and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, served as priests before the Lord. So Elkanah's family went up to a feast day, and when he does that, the Lord, you know, the Lord says, Now wait a minute, get it right. The Lord said in Deuteronomy 12, Do not eat of the tithe inside your gates, but eat it before the Lord. So the pattern is Elkanah brings an animal, which is sacrificed before the Lord. The breast of that animal and its fat are set aside in a, in a special offering to the Lord, and the right thigh, the right rear haunch of the animal, okay, was given to the officiating priest. See, that's how the priests had their lives were sustained by the, by the sacrificial system. Portions of that animal that had been sacrificed before the Lord were roasted and handed back to the family to eat together. Elkanah gave portions to Penina and her children, but to Hannah, he gave her some special portion, perhaps double, perhaps a double delicious portion, because he loved her. And here we learn that the Lord had closed her womb. The reason she is barren is because the Lord stepped in. In verse 6, Penina, Hannah's rival, would push, provoke, anger, vex, and deeply frustrate Anna, perhaps in double, double portion, sort of back at you, so that she was bitterly grieving. The Hebrew word for provoke is ra'am, and it means to thunder, to trouble, to supremely irritate. 
Okay, this was not sly, sneaky, whispered stuff. This was open. It was loud. This is like the roar of thunder. And again, significant in Hebrew, the text says a second time she did it because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. Year after year of going up that road to celebrate at Shiloh and every time on the way, Panina would provoke her and hammer on her all the way to the celebration because she wasn't bringing any new child with her. Okay? Only this day when they went up to celebrate in Shiloh, she was overcome by this bitter grief and she wept and would not eat. Verse 8 of chapter 1 is classic and that it illustrates a husband's compassion but lack of understanding of the problem that's plaguing his wife. Hey, husbands, we've all been there, right? We feel, we feel bad. We feel sorry. We want to help, but we don't get it. We're drawing blanks here, guys. And that's Elkanah. Okay, here? Compassion with a lack of understanding. Gene Getz was a scholar, Bible scholar, a writer, a radio preacher from my day. And here... He nails the issue. And he's, you know, here's, here's Elkanah, and, he's, and he says, Why are you weeping? Paren, as if he didn't know. Close paren. Why, why don't you eat something? Paren, as if he did not understand. Close paren. Why are you so downhearted? Paren, as if he is unaware of the irritation and bitter grief. Close paren. Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? As if he fears that he will be rejected. Now remember, family, who had ten sons? It was Leah, Jacob's wife. Elkanah is trying to say to Hannah that he loves her like Jacob loved Rachel, linking himself to the patriarchs who had barren wives. So before we go to the next little insight into what Hannah's doing, let's look at what God is doing. Okay, this is, this is part of the zoom out, okay? <clears throat> There's a, a quote I want to read you from Dale Ralph Davis. Quote, When God's people are without strength, without resources, without hope, without human gimmicks, then he loves to stretch forth his hand from heaven. Hannah rises. She turns her back on the family celebration and she heads to the tabernacle complex. Eli, judge and priest, is sitting at an entrance post. But Hannah is so distraught and she's weeping. She's unaware of his presence. Now, Hannah could have cursed God. She could have challenged God's motives. Or she could have bitterly rejected him. She could have turned to the readily available Canaanite witchcraft related to barren wombs, the clay statues of Astarte, goddess of fertility. And they're found all over Israel in, in, in archaeological digs. Hannah did not do that. In great embittered distress, she humbles herself before the God of armies, the Almighty One, recognizing the Lord alone is the giver of life. 
out of her mouth comes the same line used of Leah after giving birth to Reuben. God, look on my affliction. She calls the Lord to look, to remember, to not forget her, and give her, literally, man seed. Give me a son. Then, part of her vow to God, she pledges to give this firstborn son to serve his whole life before the Lord, and that no razor would touch his head. Hannah steps over the usually temporary Nazarite vow that's found in Numbers chapter 6. See, that's, that's someone who is dedicated and set apart for God, and she makes this vow a permanent vow. The Nazir, okay, were, were to have no contact with any grapes, raisins, wine, vinegar, grape seeds, or skins, and no contact with the dead, the, the Nazarite. Their life meant their joy was in the Lord God. Their hair grew out like a mantle, an immediate marker of, of their being set apart for God. There are direct parallels between Samson's mother and Hannah. Their sons were both Nazir. Hannah continues to literally multiply. The text, that's the Hebrew text. She multiplies prayer to the Lord, but does so in silence with only her lips moving. Now, Eli's been watching, and he's convinced she needs sharp rebuke. Eli thinks she is shakor, Hebrew word for raving drunk. Elkanah is not the only one to misunderstand her. Three verses before she had pledged her son to a Nazarite vow, no wine, and Hannah stands up for herself. She says to Eli, I'm a woman with an oppressed spirit, a spirit that's experiencing fierce, cruel, heavy hardship. And I was praying. I was pouring out my soul before the Lord. I'm not a worthless woman. I am not base, not a scoundrel, not ungodly, not wicked. Eli recognizes he's misspoken badly. And he responds to her with a blessing in the most ancient name of God, Elohim, the God of Israel. And he says, may he grant your request. Here, this socially powerless woman living in rural Ephraim knows God better than Eli. Let's read David's words out of Psalm chapter uh, Psalm 20, first five verses. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of God of Jacob set you securely on high. May he send you help from the sanctuary and support you from Zion. May he remember all your meal offerings and bring your burnt offerings and find your burnt offering acceptable. Selah. In other words, you pause and you think about that. Verse 4, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill your counsel. He will sing, we will sing for joy over your victory. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. See, Hannah answers politely 
She left Eli, she ate, and her face was no longer sad. The next morning, the family rises, it worships before the Lord, and all of them return home to Ramah. Elkanah and Hannah, in due course, they share the marriage bed, and she conceives a child. The text says, the Lord remembered her. Now here, I want you to get this. This is a pivot point in history. When the Hebrew word zakar, which is the verb for to remember, is used with the Lord God as the subject, the Hebrew text points to a beginning of a major new work initiated by God himself on behalf of his people. You can find this in Genesis 8 and Exodus 2 as well. This new baby from God, God's opening the womb of, of Hannah, from God remembering her, makes her baby a hinge of history. In due time, the child is born, and Hannah names him Samuel. She says that's because God has heard. Okay, but you could also parse his name a little differently. It could be Shemu Ale, the name of God. You've read about how Samuel, uh, excuse me, how Samuel was an infant, how Hannah chose to stay home with him from the Shiloh celebrations until Samuel was weaned. And in that culture, that was three, maybe, maybe four years, three and a half years in that culture. Then Hannah keeps her vow. She collects a magnanimous offering. Hebrew text says three bulls were taken. You know, but I, it's difficult. It's a difficult uh, translation. It could be a three-year-old bull. But I think the context that follows speaks of one bull that's sacrifice, which is going to be a monster family feast that's going to follow this sacrifice. And 23 liters of flour, an ephah of flour, and a whole goat skin of wine. This is a big offering. As she comes to present Samuel before the Lord and bringing him and placing him before Eli. Her words in verses 26 to 28 bear testimony to her inner transformation. She is grateful. She is confident. And she's walking in integrity. She knows what, what, what it was that David wrote in Psalm 127. Children are a gift from the Lord. And she is, she's giving that precious firstborn son Back to God. Hannah follows up with a prophetic prayer. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, there are 10 prophetic statements for you to find. Go for it. Go find those statements. Go chase down those statements. In her song, if you will, Hannah is rejoicing in her own experience, her answered prayer. The contrast between her initial sobbing prayer and now a prayer that exalts the Lord is huge. Next, she re she rejoices in God's justice. Thirdly, Hannah rejoices in her future hope. Her song refers to the Lord's anointed and is closely related to the Magnificat of the Virgin Mary, mother of Jesus. Lastly, the family goes home to Ramah, but Samuel stays and ministers to the Lord before Eli the priest. 
Now, note here, Samuel's three years old. That's much like Declan, who is here in our midst. So picture Declan being left in Shiloh as an acolyte in, in Levitical training under Eli. How did Hannah equip her toddler to stand before the Lord? I want us to think on that one. Forge family, let me urge you to seize the pattern of Hannah's prayer when you are in need. Humble yourself before God, asking him to look at your circumstances, which he already knows. He has been waiting for you and your prayers. Call on him to remember his promises to you, which he will never forget. Ask him to not forget you, which he cannot do, because you're a son, a daughter of the king. Ask him to please give me a way out, a way forward, a kingdom way that's been prepared to be healed, delivered, restored, and prospered. All right, Forge family, let's pray. God of armies, God almighty, life leads us to times of distress, grief, persecution, and anguish. It's just life. And and sometimes we get targeted by the enemy. Oh, oh Lord, you wait for us at those waypoints, ready to see, ready to answer, ready to release your answers, to deliver your ways forward. Oh Lord God, remember us. Get us ready to stand before you. All right, Forge family. I love you. We'll see you soon. God bless.